unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? Nathan, I'm pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic, and it looks like we've got a a pretty special surprise lined up for the listeners today. We do. Our guest today is a copywriting historian and eight-figure practitioner of direct response copy. His name is Sean Vosler, and I've wanted to have him on the show ever since I saw some of his detailed, comprehensive mind maps on Facebook connecting early pioneers of advertising to the world of today. Now, here on Copywriters Podcast, as many listeners know, we have our old master's series, and we've gone as far back as 100 years ago to the 1920s. But Sean has some great information that was new to me as of this week to important influences and people back in the late 1800s. Sean's also the founder of Increase.Academy and author of the best-selling guide, Seven Figure Marketing Copy. And he specializes in helping businesses scale to seven and even eight figures. And we're going to talk about a bunch of things today, including how he scales businesses with direct marketing copy. But just as important is his unique and penetrating research back into the 1880s and 1890s, where he is on a mission to find out how we got to where we are today in the world of direct response marketing. Of course, one of the reasons Copywriters Podcast got to where we are today is this. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So, Sean, welcome and thanks so much for being here. Dude, I am, uh, I am honored to be here. So excited to share some, uh, some nuggets on what we've been doing on the, uh, the research side of the, the nerdy history side of this stuff and kind of the the journey that got me to exploring that. Cool. Well, you know, we're at a point now where the pandemic and restrictions are coming to an end. And you told me when we were having a chat to prep for all of this, that you can't wait to go to New York City. And uh, it's not for a Broadway show. It's not for the <laughs> pizza. It's not for a bagel. Would you mind sharing with us to start why you're going there? Yeah. So, you know, there's been, um, uh, I, I tend to get on these research bins and, you know, for writing my own book, it was this whole thing. But then I started um, exploring this whole concept of where all these ideas in direct marketing and copywriting, whether it's online or off, where they all came from. And in New York City, um, to sum it up, they're in, in, a, in the New York Public Library, often they're hidden archives somewhere. There's a book I'm really looking forward to finding that I ha- haven't been able to find online. Um, there, it's the the only one in existence that I know of, and it's of uh, uh, written by. It's the first edition uh, or the first part of a a bunch of books written by this guy named Charles Austin Bates, 
and it's a name you won't hear a ton of. He's he's in if you Google him, he doesn't really even have a Wikipedia article, but he is in the quote unquote advertisers hall of fame. Um, and it, he's in a lot of footnotes in a lot of books about marketing, but he has actually written tons and tons of content. He has 1100 page book on copy and direct uh, marketing from uh, 1902. And then he actually, he had a, the one I'm really looking for is the first of his periodical. If you're familiar with like Printer's Inc. around the, the turn of the century, there were a lot of these periodicals, right? And uh, there's one that's out there that I cannot find, the first of 12 uh, written by this guy that's in the New York Public Library that I'm going to go get soon as it uh, opens back up. And I'm in California, so you know it's going to be a bit of a, a hike, but it's going to be fun to find it for sure. It sounds like it's worth it, especially for what you're doing. Why don't you tell us about some of these really old masters, and maybe we could start with Charles Austin Bates, what you found out about them and, and why you think they're so important. Sure, yeah. And, you know, in the show notes, I'll, we'll we'll try to link to the uh, the mind map I've been working on of this. Um, uh, I'm calling it the uh, lineage of thought to, to, to give it a really dramatic name, you know, but <laughs> the idea is, you know, mapping out where in the 1940s and 50s where they started using the terms, you know, unique selling position um, in the 1920s, really the, the reason why advertising terminology came around uh, in the 1930s, the idea of products as personalities started, uh, you know, where all this stuff came from and why, uh, why it started being used and, and how it was used. So that started me on a journey of like looking back through time, trying to find the earliest bits of information I could find on certain things. You know, we're, we're all familiar with AIDA, right? Like the, the actual framework that a lot of marketing is derived from. And that, the, that goes back way into the, the, um, the 1890s. But I, I, the first kind of rendition of that I found was 1902 in a book that's sitting on my shelf. And I was surprised to find that a lot of this stuff was starting to churn up in the, the, the late 1800s. So the the people around that time who were practitioners of this, they weren't even really called copywriters at the time. That term wasn't used as much as the term, um, uh, what did they call them? It was either like admin or ad writers, but there's there's a few names that stick out and they all kind of come back to a central point that a lot of us look back to, which is the fellow named David Ogilvy, you know, in the 60s, right? Sure. Yeah. And in a lot of his influence, it's funny, you'll find him quoting a lot of people. And if you tr- trace it back and keep going back to the people, like he said, a big influence of his was Claude Hopkins, right? Scientific sure. advertising, huge, huge influence to us, of course, today too, mainly because he wrote a book about it and we still have access to it. But if you look at it, like who was Claude's major influences? And, and if you keep going back, you start to find a few key figures that were kind of the, the father figures of much of the direct marketing pieces that we see today or the tools that we use. And I, I, you know, I mentioned Charles Austin Bates at the outset. He is one of the really the, the first people to start collecting the information about what makes advertising work. And his big influences around the time was a fellow named John Powers, who has a lot more written about him. And he actually was, I was literally just uh, looking at this book called Scientific Advertising Origins, which is kind of the the history of of Claude Hopkins and Lasker 
and those guys. And, and it just it noted out Claude Hopkins was actually taught by John Powers. So there's all these, these different connections. And the further back you go, the, the more entwined all these stories start to get. And there's, there's a few good books written about the early days, but there's, they generally kind of glaze over that time period. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in seeing where those all stem from. What's like one great takeaway you got from John Powers or uh, from Bates? Yeah, so Powers and Bates, they kind of come from this, this new school of thought at their time, which was, you know, advertised based on just, they were probably the first ones really to facilitate the, the reason why advertising, like they just told people why they should buy stuff, which, you know, seems pretty obvious today. Like, here's the features and benefits, right? Like, you know, here's a, a hair blower. It dry it, it will dry your hair quicker and you know you will be able to have better hairstyle, right? Like just tell people what it does. But at the time that was pretty revolutionary because before then, um, you had people who it was mostly advertising was mostly in the realm of uh what they called patent medicine, which was kind of the early day, like you know, put cocaine in a bunch of water and charcoal together. And you've got, you know, this, this new revolutionary thing that cures baldness or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, and that was really the earliest realms of advertising as we might consider it today, where in, in newspapers, these patent medicines would advertise. Um, and nor regular business businesses didn't advertise as much. In fact, I, I mentioned you this the, uh, yesterday, most banks didn't like, to loan to companies who did advertising like 1860s uh, and 70s because they thought basically the rationale was if they have to advertise, their product can't be good, right? Oh, we cannot approve this loan. You're an advertiser. Yeah, exactly. So there was the earliest advertising firm in the United States was it wasn't founded till around 1870. And you would, you would think, you know, companies even at that, that time, Industrial Revolution was going pretty strong. You'd I assume that advertising had gone since way before then, at least in the the way we would understand it. But it really wasn't. There wasn't um, as much. There there was instances of advertising being used, obviously, but it wasn't really formalized until about the 1880s, where it really started getting some traction and companies started realizing, like, hey, if we tell people what about what we're selling, they'll come and buy it, as opposed to just walking by the store and seeing it. And buying it, and that that was pretty fascinating at the time. Like, seeing, yeah, wow, who knew, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, advertising today is international. Even Ogilvy has uh, branches and and um, uh, or you know offices all all around the world. Um, maybe not all around the world. Maybe not in Russia, for example, but um, in, in India and uh, Singapore and all over Europe and of course the UK, but. I'm getting the sense from you that advertising as we know it today really started in America. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, there, there was, it was kind of like, you know, the, the discovery of the atom bomb was going on in Europe and in the United States at the same time, like, but separate, but at the same time, there was advertising. In fact, the first real kind of examples of traditional advertising was, um, by this guy named Thomas uh, Barrett. And in, in this was in the early, early days. Um, he, he made ads for soap. And this was in the, uh, the UK mm. or 
England. I don't, I'm not sure it was the UK at that time. I think it was England. Um, <laughs> yeah, something like that, right? So he was really uh, one of the first folks to to start doing advertising. But at the same time, it, so it's around the same time companies on both sides of the uh, the Atlantic started uh, seeing that they could influence people to buy their products. And it was mainly done through uh, newspaper advertising and then magazines and periodicals as time went along. Um, but then also really started gearing up in the 1890s when it started to formalize as more of a, a, um, a more agency started uh, going, you know, James Walter Thomas uh, or Thompson, um, who, you know, that agency is still running today. It is one of the top 10 agencies in the world. Um, that agency started, he started in about 1865 um, running that or yeah, that that world, because um, he he started working with one of the first agencies out there, but uh, but yeah, it it was on both sides of the 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 Atlantic, but you know as it started getting more formalized, um, this is where folks like Charles Austin Bates started coming in, and um, Printers Inc., which was a, a periodical at that time. I've got a few. My goal is someday to own all the Printers Inc. bound volumes. But if you've ever seen them in a library, if it has the whole collection, it literally spans. It it's been it ran from I think the 1880s to 1960s, and and it's like a whole, you know, 30, 40 foot shelf of of bound volumes. Yeah, it's uh, wild. Yeah. So um, you were telling me yesterday about a an ad that was like disarmingly transparent, almost f frighteningly honest. That was, I think Bates or maybe powers did. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So powers who John powers, he was really what, if you look him on Wikipedia, his, his, he's given the title, the world's first full-time copywriter. Mm -hmm. or it might be Wikipedia, one of the books I got around here. Um, so he really was the kind of first practitioner of advertising for just, kind of normal products, right? Like the, um, uh, like clothing and, and just, just everyday products where before him, um, there was a few instances of it, but for the most part, it was like patent medicine and, and kind of snakes oil stuff, right. Or the circus, you know? Uh, so powers, he, they, they called him powerisms later on where, uh, he just, he just made it almost like news. Uh, it was just, just here's what's going on, hyper-transparent. Um, and he was in one of the top paid individuals uh, in the United States in the 1800s. Like he, um, I think it was in the top 20. I'd have to verify that. But it was, he was a millionaire as a copywriter um, because he could just bring tons of business because no one, no one was doing advertising. People didn't really like get it at the time. So he would actually partner with companies. He was one of the first, maybe JV brokers back in the day, you would say. But he um, he'd take part of the business that came in. So he would work with department stores and things. Um, and I, 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 the specifics of one of the first ads that he started running with was um, interesting in the sense that it it literally was the company came to him and said, "Hey, we're overstocked. We've got too much of this product." We can't seem to move it uh, because people don't know we have it. Something like it's just this like list of of like what sounded like bad things, right? And he wrote the ad literally just what the guy told him, and they were so pissed at him because they're like, "You can't say that! You can't say that we're overstocked and that 
we're selling it at a discount because we have too much of it. But the next, you know, over the next few days, they completely sold out of the stock because really what he was doing was giving the public a reason why they should buy this thing. And that was that was fascinating uh, to me to look at it and say, we're still doing that today. We're, you know, we're giving people a reason why they should buy something, whether it's, you know, we're doing a limited time deal, a discount or or a special offer, bonuses, whatever it is, we're really just giving them an excuse to buy. And uh, that was revolutionary at the time when John Powers was doing it, but it was hyper transparent. It's just, here's what's going on. Um, and that influenced Claude Hopkins, obviously, a ton. Um, and then, you know, David Ogilvy was uh, obviously the famous ad man from the 60s. He was hyper influenced from Hopkins. So it, it's all kind of this this downward um, uh, train of thought back to these guys in the, the 1890s who really um, had the, the just started that movement. Okay. That's great. And, you know, you told me, um, well, we were talking yesterday. Well, many people believe that nobody understood what advertising was in 1904, 1903. And, and Johnny Kennedy, the Canadian Mountie copywriter is sitting in a saloon on North Michigan mm -hmm. Avenue. And he sends a note up with the bellman to Claude Hopkins, I know what advertising is. If you will meet me in the saloon, I will tell you. And then, yeah. and, and so he says, well, it, no, he says to Lasker and then Lasker comes down and he says, it's salesmanship in print and, <laughs> right, and, right. and the whole world changed. Like right, all, yeah. all of the dead trees of winter suddenly bloomed with these green and gold leaves and, and business with, um, apparently it wasn't quite that way. Well, it, it, that story, whether it's editorialized or not, you know, history can tell us. But Lasker, um, for those who aren't familiar, he ran uh, one of the most successful agencies in the early 1900s. But they um, they advertise as much for themselves and how much they how awesome they were uh, than just about anybody else at the time. So they they were good at at uh, share you know sharing that story, and they actually they paid. Um, Johnny Kennedy really well. Like he was one of the best paid copywriters, but they made sure clients knew that too, right? Like they, they were uh, the association that they paid him. So I think it was like 750 grand a year, something like that, which at the time was just insane, right? But the, um, the result of that was they were able to basically say, we've got the highest paid copyists in the world. You know, we're going to get you great copy. And and they did great work. You know, you can go and still. I've got a collection of of a lot of their um, their ads and stuff. But but really, at that time, not to undervalue their their quality, but it was like if you did advertising, um, you're going to beat your competition because normally they weren't doing it. So you know, Procter and Gamble, those kind of companies at the time who really were doing a lot of advertising, you it was to use the kind of you know shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, kind of stuff, but um, but yeah, the that that great story of the the Canadian Mountie, you know, down at the bottom of the saloon. You know, I found that such an awesome story. In fact, it's in the Scientific Advertising Origins, which um, you know that story is told by Lasker, because Lasker published these what were called the Lasker Talks or something like that, mm -hmm. and he tells that story a lot. But uh, Johnny Kennedy, you know, he's kind of set up as this mythical Canadian Mountie who. You know, it's just off in the, the wilderness and, you know, had this realization of 
you know, salesman in print. Well, you know, if you start digging into it, um, there's not much written about it, but I came across in my, my uh, ADHD fueled, you know, read everything I can written by these guys. Um, in Printers Inc., actually, there's a, an article because Charles Austin Bates, who I'm kind of obsessed with, he was an ad critiquer for, um, for Printers Inc. So he was one of those, first, and it's still done a lot today. He would, he would find advertisements, write about what was good about them, what was bad about them to educate people in Printers Inc. And if you go back far enough, you'll find, I'll have to, I should pull it up. I should have been able to get you the exact date. But there's a, uh, a critique that Bates did of Robert Kennedy's work way before he, you know, positioned uh, um, the reason why advertising. And so there's this connection there. And then um, Charles Austin Bates has a 1,100-page book from 1902 and then another book from 1896 where he, he basically coined that term salesman in print when he was teaching about what copy is. And, you know, so Kennedy's generally uh, given the credit for that, but I, I tend to think it was Bates, you know, not that it, it's dramatic in the sense that, uh, you know, at the time it probably would have been a big deal, but it, for now, who cares? I mean, it's just, it's just stories. Right. But, uh, but I found that fascinating that there's that connection there and there's not much written about Bates. I hope to write a book on him one day. Uh, it's interesting that that would be like me saying, well, uh, I invented the bullet point and then we, you know, create all of this mythology around it. And, Eh, I may have actually, with you know my templates, I may have actually improved it a little bit, but I sure as hell didn't invent it. Um, all right, so you know I am very curious as to how you got into all this because you didn't start out as a copywriter, did you? Right. Yeah. So my own journey into this this realm of the, the nerdy stuff we've been talking about with the history of it was born out of um, my own little journey of becoming. I, by accident, really a copywriter, <laughs> to, to put it, you know, simply, I, I started in the, the technic, technical world. I was a website builder and a, um, I, I got in the world of just literally just agency work of building out websites. I didn't even know what the term copywriter was or copy or anything like that. So earlier, probably 10 years ago now, I, I just literally set up WordPress sites for people. And I, I tended to find the clients that were happiest and the ones that, you know, always paid their bills on times and didn't complain and didn't nitpick every little, you know, shade of color on the, the website were the ones who had great content on their website. You had some pretty famous clients, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So after the agency stuff, um, then I started working with internet marketers. <laughs> uh, at that time, I didn't know really what that was either, but I saw this guy named Lewis Howes you know, sitting in an infinity pool in New Zealand. And I, I basically, it's like that scene of Wolf of Wall Street. I was like, whatever that guy's doing, I'm going to, I just want to do that. You know, I don't know what he's doing, but I want to learn it. Right. So I stalked him and his business partner for a couple, uh, you know, six months to a year, just trying to add value and started the conversation. And eventually they hired me as a, a web tech. And so I helped build a lot of their funnels and things like that. Um, but the, that kept, going forward, building out websites. And I was still more on the building side than the writing side. Um, and then I got to work with a, a fellow named Andy Jenkins, who um, just brilliant marketer who unfortunately recently passed away. And at the time, his business partner, Mike Bill Same. So they hired me as a web tech. 
And that's really where I started getting my education of here's how messaging works, right? Here's why did, we're using this. Thing. Did they yeah. train you? Was it all by you know, observing and analyzing? Or sometimes would they explain stuff to you in conversations? I mean, how did that go? Sure. So at first it was more like, you know, we're doing these launches and making a bunch of money. And it was more like, you know, every hand on deck. And sometimes they'd be like, put a put a Sean headline in there. And that was kind of the term of like, it's going to be a crappy headline, but we need something in there. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and so at the time I just, I like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And over time I started getting just, it just was more absorbed. Um, and then Andy personally started helping me understand uh, the, the mechanics of it all and how, it, you know, how this headline helped people come down the page to read the messaging. And we made it entertaining so that people would, would watch it and, and all the different things that go to drive, um, a direct marketing piece and even branding to a certain extent. Um, and then after that, I, I started doing more, more of the same kind of stuff. But now that I knew how it all worked, um, I started transitioning into doing it on, a profit share only. So I would build out funnels and webinars and do all the copy stuff and build out the tech. But I I started working with folks like Ty Lopez and um, Sam Ovens and a lot of these guys who in their own rights are brilliant marketers. Um, but I was able to help come in and, and facilitate uh, some new copy pieces and, and webinar pieces on a profit share. Um, so really had to put my money where my mouth is, right? Because I couldn't just get paid to write a thing. I had to 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 get paid. I had to make it work, you know. And yeah. I had to bring you know the traffic and stuff like that too. There's nothing nothing like having your feet to the fire, right? Um, exactly. I mean, yes. I don't mean this the wrong way, but um, do you think? Oh, that Andy Jenkins, when they said, put a Sean headline in there, eventually you start to have some pity on you. He said, no, I, I really, <laughs> I maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, they didn't hire me for that. Right. It was, they hired me for tech oh, sure. and, and it was more of a, um, uh, I, we just, you know, we had a good relationship near the end of my tenure with them. And, and I just, I was just very curious and, and they would, they would go on their little rants of, of, you know, getting the launch ready. And I just sit there and listen, you know, I didn't really understand, uh, you know, all the terminology and stuff, but it, it starts to, starts to, to get in there. And, and then it, the studying really started for me because I was like, um, I started writing out standard operating procedures or whatever you want to call them of my own, because I would, for like folks like Ty Lopez, I'd be writing five or six emails sometimes a day just to get like, content together right um and i wrote very very long content even in emails it wasn't like you know uh but anyways it it worked really well we did you know lots of lots of sales um for high-end products so i started to create like my own little templates of here's what to do so i could do it faster and for more people um and that's really what birthed the book because i had a lot of these these processes that uh, I used in, in my own business. Yeah. Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and how people can get it? The book itself was the culmination of like, I think it's, it's safe to say I'm doing okay at this. I'd like to help other people. And, and that's really where uh, the, the birth of it was. So I started collecting a lot of the, the methodologies and digging into the deeper parts of it. You know, as, as you put your book together, it's like, you, 
as you start to teach it, you learn it even better and recommend that to everybody, right? The book itself, it's really geared towards um, entrepreneurs who they may, may not be full-time copyists, but they're looking for strategies that they can start implementing pretty quickly. So there's a lot of the, the book is front loaded with a lot of just like shortcuts and templates and, and like just strategy guides. But then in the second part of the book, I really get into the more the psychology and the depth of what makes it work for those who are maybe a bit more advanced in the copywriting world. But that's really what drove that dive into the history of this stuff because I wanted to know where it came from, right? Like it's just, it's fascinating as you start looking into this world. It's been going a long time and it just keeps evolving. And, you know, folks like yourself um, in modern day, just masters of the craft are moving it forward, but there's, we're still able to look to the past to pull a lot of great concepts and, and knowledge out of these, uh, these masters from, from 120 years ago now. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, the one thing anybody in any market, whether you're an Instagram influencer or a hardcore direct marketer, the psychology is the same. And once you master the psychology, you can go this way, you can go that way, you can go that way, that way. Sean, before we're out of here, where's the best place for people to go to find out more about you and your work? Sure. So the, the book link there is sean.co slash copywriters podcast. And, you know, if you want to just connect with Facebook's probably the easiest way to just, you know, if, if you want to interact, I interact a lot on there. It's facebook.com slash Sean Vossler. Um, you know, and, and personally, I, I love just connecting with folks who find this stuff interesting, but understand that a big part of their business is the messaging, right? And any business owner that's been doing this long enough, you know, knows that uh, the product needs to be great. There's no doubt that that's just the base level today. So a lot of times the way you've got to stand out is elevating your messaging. And the better we get at that, the more people we can help and the more influence we can build with the people we need to help. So appreciate you guys uh, having me on, help me bring that message out to the world and, uh, you know, look forward to keeping the, the conversation going. Yeah, thank you. Me too. And until next time, if you want to catch more episodes of this podcast, you can head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. And until next week, we will see you next time. See you next time. Hey, did you enjoy today's show? Want to help get it into the ears of more listeners? Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.